Well, here we are. This is the moment we're going to open up the scriptures together. If you've got a Bible with you, then now is the moment to dig it out from under the sofa or whatever. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 8, which is uh, we've been following a series through the book of Acts, and that's where we are. So Acts chapter 8, we're going to read from verse 9. It says this. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart isn't right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to, the, to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And that is God's word to us today. Before I was a professional Christian, I had a proper job. I worked in IT in, in the city of London. And so every day I used to commute in, uh, into London on the train and uh, you know, followed all the usual etiquette. You're not supposed to look anyone in the eye. You're not supposed to speak to anyone. And so it was just so weird. Like I, I, I caught the same train carriage with the same people at the same stop every day for years and years. And I never found out their names or anything. And I so wish now, looking back, that I just one day gone in and just said, hey, Larry, great tie. Or, you know, like, hey, like your scarf, Sarah. But I never did. And that time's gone now, so never mind. Anyway, so, so one afternoon, uh, I was speaking to a colleague and he said to me, do you know what, if you get off the train at Wimbledon, just at the end of your, uh, at the end of your working day, then uh, at this time of year, you can just walk from Wimbledon train station, you can walk through until you get to the All England Lawn Tennis Club and you can get into the, the place where Wimbledon is happening for 10 quid. And, and it was like a little known secret. And, and so once you could get into the ground, then you could go to a little booth at the back. And there was a guy there selling for charity tickets that people had finished with. You know, like they'd had to leave early, they'd had their lunch and then they decided to go home. And so they were selling them for charity. And so for another five quid, you could get into center court. So for 15 quid, 
I was able to see at the time Leighton Hewitt playing Roger Federer. Unbelievable to think he's still playing now on centre court. And whatever game I'd thought that I'd played before that moment, it certainly wasn't tennis because what I saw there was a completely different game. I mean, it was unbelievable. The power, the skill, the athleticism, the, just the beauty of it, the grace with which they played the game. It was absolutely astonishing and just beautiful. And I, I, I don't think I've, up until that point, I don't think I'd ever been so inspired. And so I, you know, finished up there, got back on the train, went home. I, I was like looking under my bed for my tennis racket. I, I got one of those little elasticated head, headbands. I pulled out my shell suit and I was doing sit-ups till two in the morning because I was just so excited and thrilled. My point is, you might be wondering what the point is. I think as we journey through the book of Acts, we're supposed to be deeply inspired. I, th I think, uh, in one sense, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're following this thing right now in this cultural moment. You know, um, uh, COVID for all of us has been hard. And, and it's not a competition, but for some people it's been harder than others. And, and the truth is that even church, being a Christian, has been hard. Uh, and, uh, you know, like for, for, for the best part of a year, none of us were able to meet in person, which is something that, that we've done unrestricted for 1700 years in this country. It's just quite a shocking, quite a shocking thing. And, and it's so easy in this cultural moment to have our heads down and to focus on what's difficult. But I think in this moment, the Lord is wanting to cause us to lift our eyes and to lift our heads and to begin to see that what we're seeing in this book is a church on fire. And I think we're supposed to look at that and say, oh God, please would you do that in our day with us in our nation right now, please God. I think it's supposed to inspire us. You know, these people, um, they, they had this profound experience of the Holy Spirit in an, in an upper room, just 120 of them. And within a few short years, uh, the gospel had spread for thousands of miles. Thousands of people had committed their hearts to God. There were hundreds and hundreds of local churches all over the, uh, the known world in every tribe and tongue and language. It was just an astonishing thing. And we're saying, God, please would you do something like that in our day. I think God's intention for us as a family, as we journey through this book, is that he would cause us to fix our eyes on the church as we could be, as we could be. And as part of that, I think in this passage in particular, the Lord is giving us a, a fresh vision for the church. And it's a vision in three parts. The first thing is, it's a vision of a church captivated by Jesus. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, what he's doing is he's, he's contrasting um, the people of the world with the people of God. And so we find out, first of all, about the people of the world. And first of all, we hear about this guy, Simon the sorcerer. And Simon is a, uh, he, he's absolutely delighted with himself. In fact, it says there in verse nine, he boasted that he was someone great. I think we've all met people like that. People are really sure of themselves. But not only was he just delighted with himself, 
but also everyone around him was also equally thrilled at who he was. You see that there in verse 10. It says, all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God, to which we would want to say, um, are you sure about that? Uh, is he really rightly called the great power of God? So anyway, in a way, that's how the world works, isn't it? That's how, uh, I was going to say pop idol, that's not an especially contemporary reference. Uh, that's how uh, uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here works, that some people are just moderately impressive and everyone else is easily impressed and everyone's delighted with one another. But Luke wants to draw a contrast between those people and the people of God. And as soon as the people of God come onto the stage, they're not in any way delighted with themselves. They're, they're delighted with someone entirely different. It says there in verse 12, they believe Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And then later on in verse 25, it says, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And so Luke's point is, Peter and Philip and John and the others, they're not excited by their own personalities and skills. They're not proclaiming a message that is about their own greatness. They're not even slightly excited about having status for themselves. All they want to do is wrap their lives around the person and work of Jesus. Their message is about Jesus. Their passion and their activity is for Jesus. Their lives are centered around him. Jesus is the person that they want to make known. I remember when I was, uh, I first, when I was in my mid-teens, stated a, a desire, a sense of call to be a pastor. And I said it to my youth leader. And before I knew it, the pastor of our Baptist church had invited me to spend a day with him. And I remember thinking, oh, this is exciting. You know, this is, this is when he, he, he um, asked my opinion on all the different things that are really troubling him. You know, I was, I was just so sure of myself. I'm, I was thinking, oh, this is when he presents me with this big black Bible and helps me to prepare my very first sermon. But none of that happened. Instead, what happened was he took me in his car to the outskirts of our town, to a retirement home. And uh, as we walked through the corridors of this retirement home, there were in this retirement home the oldest people in the world. I mean, they probably weren't, but I was in my mid-teens, so they just seemed really, really old. And then as we walked through to the very end of the corridor, we went into this room and there was Charles. Charles was a guy who was part of our church. He was in his uh, early 90s. And uh, he was literally bent double because of various uh, medical conditions going on with his spine. And he had the, these glasses that were like the deepest lenses you've ever seen in your life. And he was poring over with a magnifying glass that the, uh, a Bible that looked like it was barely holding itself together. You know, all of the pages were basically loose and tired. And he looked up as he saw me and his eyes just twinkled. And I think I was like dispatched to go and make the tea or something like that. But when I came back and we sat down together, he looked me in the eye and his eyes just burning with love. And he looked at me and he said, tell me Chuck, what's your favorite thing about Jesus? I was trying to 
come up with something intelligent to say. I was racking my brains. Oh, please say something profound, say something profound. And in the end, I couldn't think of anything. And so I just did the next best thing, which was to say, uh, well, I don't know, Charles, why don't you go far first? Tell me what your favorite thing about Jesus is. And he said, well, Chuck, it's really simple. He said, I've been walking with Jesus for 84 years. And throughout that time, he's been my most faithful friend. And then he went on to talk about his life, which was really a life that had been punctuated by grief and loss. You know, he'd lost many of his close friends during the war. And then when he'd come out of the army and uh, he'd got married, then it was only a short time later, his wife was diagnosed with cancer and sub subsequently died. And then uh, about 20 years after that, he lost a second wife to a brain hemorrhage. And so he, here's a man whose life has been punctuated with sorrow. And yet the way he talked about Jesus changed my life. I just thought to myself in that moment, I, I don't know what, I, I don't, there are many things I don't know about my life, but there's one thing I do know. I want to be able to know Jesus like Charles knows Jesus. It's a vision of a church that's captivated by Jesus. The second thing is, it's a vision of a church calling one another into freedom. So the story goes on that a whole bunch of people come to know Jesus, including Simon the sorcerer, who I guess we should call Simon the ex-sorcerer from that point on, but he comes to faith in verse 13. And then uh, because it's the first group of non-Jews who are coming to faith. The, the mother church in Jerusalem send Peter and John to go and just check that everything's okay and because they're excited and also a bit concerned perhaps about what's happening. And so they get there, they lay their hands on a bunch of people. Um, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Simon, the ex-sorcerer, he's like, now that is a cool trick. I'd love to be able to lay hands on people and see that kind of power. And so he tries to buy it with money. He says, could I just, could I just like, whatever you did with those people, could I just buy that from you? And Peter isn't at all impressed. He says there in verse 20, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry. Now listen to what he says here. I don't know whether you've ever had that experience where you're reading through the Bible and as you're reading through, it's like, uh, uh, like, where did those words come from? You know, it's like they've been hiding in the background and then suddenly they leap out at you. I've never seen these things before. I must have read this passage loads of times. He says, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart isn't right before God. And then he goes on to say this, for I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. I've never seen that before. I see that your heart is full of bitterness. Here is a, a man who's come to be a follower of Jesus and a believer in Jesus. And, and to all outward appearances, uh, it's like, oh, he's just a card-carrying member of the church now. But Peter sees beyond his words. He sees beyond his activities and, and his behavior. And what he sees is, here's a man who's got bitterness in his heart. Such actually a fascinating commentary on the nature of unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment to hold us captive 
in our lives. I, I, uh, I think Taryn may have said recently, but I've discovered that I'm intolerant to gluten. Like it's not a medically diagnosed thing or anything like that. A member of our family has been diagnosed as celiac. And I was like, do you know what? Um, I'll maybe just try going without gluten, which it turns out is of the devil. And so now I don't eat gluten and I feel a million times better. I don't need a doctor to tell me not to eat gluten because I'll never knowingly eat gluten again. Anyway, the point is that the Christian life is intolerant to bitterness. It's intolerant to resentment. It's intolerant to unforgiveness. It's impossible actually to uh, have my entire backstory, all of my previous bad record forgiven by Jesus and then withhold forgiveness from my brother. It's impossible to be soft-hearted towards God and hard-hearted towards my brother. And in fact, actually, it also, the Bible also says that, that bitterness kind of takes root in your life and then grows up and it doesn't only contaminate you, it contaminates the people around you. It says that there in Hebrews 12, verse 14, make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. I just find that so interesting that the writer to the Hebrews, he's looking for an example of the kind of sin, the kind of thing that you might have in your life that doesn't only affect you, it also affects those people around you. And lots of people would think that in those kind of moments, the Bible probably reaches for something that has something to do with sex. But actually it's not that. He says, I'm gonna give you an example. There's a root of bitterness that can grow up in your life and can defile many. Private, personal sin has an impact on the people around us. But just think about the beauty of this moment. Simon the sorcerer, the ex-sorcerer, he's lived with this his whole life, as far as we know. And no one's ever said anything to him before. And then he comes into contact with the church, which is a community that calls people into freedom. And in the context of this Christian community, Peter just names it. He just says, Simon, there's something you like, never mind what you're saying and doing, I can see that at your heart, in your heart, is bitterness. You need to deal with that. I can see something that you can't see, and I'm gonna call you to freedom. Let's be a family like that. Let's be the kind of people who call one another into freedom. The third thing and the last thing is this. It's a vision of a church experiencing extraordinary power. If we just rewind a wee bit to when Peter and John are laying their hands on all these people and they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, it says, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now I've just got one question for you today and it's this. How did anyone know that they'd been filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, like... How were they able to report that something had even happened? Often, I think in church circles, we speak about being filled with the Holy Spirit as if it's something that we just have to kind of trust that we've had. It's like, how do I know that I've got it? Well, I'll just have to hope that I have. But if you, if you take that kind of understanding about being filled with the Holy Spirit and then put that into this passage, it makes no sense whatsoever. Because... Um, 
there is evidently such a powerful experience of God's presence and, and power through the Holy Spirit that um, Simon the sorcerer or ex-sorcerer who's spent his entire life making money out of counterfeit miracles and all kinds of displays of magic and power. He, he takes one look at what Peter and John are doing when they lay their hands on people and he says, now that is power and I want it. And actually, do you know what? The more that I've read the scriptures, the more I've come to realize that, that the Bible knows nothing about a Christian life that isn't punctuated by moments of uh, being filled again with the presence and power of God. Yeah, it's just, it just occurred to me just as I'm speaking, a few weeks ago, we had those power cuts and, and like in our house, we were without um, power in our sockets for just over two days. And we were like climbing the walls. Our kids were climbing the walls. We, like, it was like, we couldn't imagine how you could survive for longer than a couple of days without the power that comes in the sockets. But somehow as Christians, we tolerate an absence of power. Let's not be like that church. Let's be desperate and hungry for more of God's presence and power. In the Bible, it's a dramatic life-shaping experience. Already in our journey in the book of Acts, the early church has been filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They've been thrust out into the street where Peter stood up and in Acts chapter two, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit too. And then Peter's filled again with the Holy Spirit in chapter four when he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. And then he gets released from prison and then he goes to a prayer meeting and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit again. And then in Acts chapter six, Stephen and Philip are filled with the Spirit. And then in Acts chapter seven, Stephen again is full of the Holy Spirit. And now here's Peter and John in Acts chapter eight uh, laying their hands on all of these Samaritans and they're all getting filled with the Holy Spirit. This is something that happens over and over again. In uh, our sabbatical in 2019, I was reading through Paul's letters and what I came to realize was that Paul expects Christians to have moments, experiences of God's presence that they can look back on when times are hard. And that, uh, that those experiences are things that then er kind of help us to navigate everything else that goes on in our lives. That's why, for example, just one example, in Galatians chapter three, when he's speaking uh, to the Galatians and he's really cross with them because they've kind of um, swapped all of the grace of God for a whole load of laws and legalism. And in, in Galatians 3 verse 2, he said, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? That sentence only makes sense if they, if they know that they've had an experience of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And then he says this, have you experienced so much in vain? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Friends, I, I'm only saying this because I'm desperate for that in my own life. I'm desperate for more of God's presence and power. I'm desperate. And do you know what? Even more than that, I'm not, I, I'm not so much desperate for myself uh, as I am desperate for my children and for our young people and for people who've come to faith recently and who've never had an experience of God's presence and power. Maybe you're watching this right now online and you've never had a powerful experience where you know that you've been connected via a lightning bolt to heaven. 
We'd love to just pray for you right now that that would be the case. Let's pray together. And Lord, I pray for all of my friends and the people I haven't met yet who will be my friends, who are at home right now. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Fill them afresh. Just pray for God's power to be descending upon you right now, wherever you are in the world. God will find you. Fill them with the power that only comes from the Holy Spirit. And maybe just where you are right now, you're thinking, this all sounds brilliant, but I'm not even a Christian. Can I just introduce you to Jesus right now? If you'd like to become a Christian right now and experience the kind of power that you've been longing for your whole life, then why don't we pray together? I'll I'll just say a prayer one line at a time and you just need to join in with me. My Father in heaven, I'm so sorry I haven't lived my life with you or for you. I really want that to change. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross in my place. Father, I receive your forgiveness in my life. Please now, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit, your presence and your power. Help me, help me to live my life with you and for you from now on. Amen.